All right, Jack, we haven't done Breach of the Week in a while. Oh, we're overdue. Yeah, I actually think we uh, we double up. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. Double Breach for the Week. I love it. Two. Two Breaches for the price of one. Yeah. Bogo. Buy one, get one. Although <laughs> like we're not it. really buying it. We're kind of we're kind of giving it. I like it. Give one, get one. So it's it's a go-go. <laughs> Sweet. Where do you want to start? Let's start with the cafe press one. That one looks pretty delicious. <laughs> it is, because there's actually we, we get to see it from the beginning to the end. So it'd probably be a great idea for those people who weren't familiar with it when it happened in like 2019. Sort of what happened to allow this breach of 23 million customer records to happen and sort of what made it so as bad as it was. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Cafe Press, I'm going to ask you to keep me honest on this one a little bit. So Cafe Press is like an Etsy of sorts, where it's like it's a marketplace where third parties can go and sell their wares on the Cafe Press site. So you can get things like t-shirts and stickers and coffee mugs and really like unique screen printed items. And it's a, it's a storefront for third party vendors. Right on. Yeah, you could conceivably have an incredibly excellent pwn t-shirt with an image printed by the folks at Cafe Press if someone were to do such a thing. <laughs> and by the way, I, I didn't mention, I think one of the reasons why it's really exciting for us and it's in the news is just a couple of days ago, uh, they were actually fined by the Federal Trade Commission half a million dollars for making the mistakes. And uh, hats off, credit to Phil Muncaster from the team at Info Security in the UK uh, for a great bit of writing. So there you go. Back to you, Chief. <laughs> and when I actually, when I look at like the FTC decision and order docket, yeah, based on this event, I mean, five hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money, but the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, <laughs> really. Well, you know, except for the fact that most people don't pay anything. Oh, that's true. <laughs> right? I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, when back, it must have been like 2017 or so, when it was Gaffey versus TRICARE. So basically, the group that supports healthcare for our veterans and their families had lost four million records of all these service members and really detailed information about them and everybody in their families, like every bit of personal data, and they were sued, just threw it immediately out of court and said, you can't show any proximate harm. So the fact that these guys got spanked at all is nice, but you're absolutely right. You bring this up every time, and I think it's a really salient point, right, that we do not take these crimes seriously at all, right? And so you know, this is a step, but it is very much a toddler's first attempt at making the stairs kind of step. Yeah, yeah. Just as a like a quick aside, you know, just like a personal story. And I, I actually can't help myself. I have to share it. <laughs> so, and uh, there is a point in time, which I'm not going to give the exact dates because it could be uh, reconciled to a different point in my life. But having a conversation with technology leaders about the importance of basically compliance, right? Security and compliance and the consequence of being non-compliant is going to result in a fine. So after like putting my case presenting it, they say, okay, what's the fine? I was like, well, it's, you know, starts at a couple thousand dollars a month and then starts to escalate from there. They're like, well, you're talking about a billion dollar business here. A $2,000 fine seems like a good cost of doing business. So let's not do compliance, make business easier and we can continue printing money. Mm. So anyway, I guess to bring it all the way around, like in this case, you know, I guess it's a kind of step in the right direction as far as uh, levying any fine for non-security 
Okay, so back to Cafe Press here. But by the way, it is it is approximately, I'm just doing the math in my head, I think it's about four cents per record or something. <laughs> <laughs> Three cents a record or something like that. Yeah. It's really not much. Yeah, that is less than a credit card interchange fee. Right on. Yeah, so 23 million accounts get leaked. I think they're originally found on Have I Been Pwned on Troy Hunt's website. Yeah, I think Troy found them in his dark web research and then he posted it. So that's how people found out about it. Yep. Okay. So fast forward a couple of years, FTC comes out, levies their punishment. But with it, they also, I guess, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but it's like they make some requirements. Yep. For Press. Oh, yeah. Mandated information security program. It is further ordered that Cafe Press basically build a information security program, which is pretty basic. <laughs> Both basic and impossible to fulfill. Yeah. And so on the list here, they've got things like document and writing the information security program. But look at the safeguards, dude. Look at the eight safeguards that exist on page four. Yeah. The word all is used frequently, which is like unbelievably painful. All right. Yeah. So let's go there. There's actually a couple pages of mandates here. Most of it I would characterize as just like just good cyber hygiene, really. But the technical safeguards are um, technical measures to monitor all of respondents' networks and all systems and assets. The second one is policies and procedures to ensure that all code for web apps is reviewed for the existence of common vulnerabilities. Policies and procedures to minimize data collection. Encryption of all social security numbers. Doesn't say what type of encryption. Data access controls for databases storing personal information. Policies and procedures to ensure that all devices on the network with access to personal information are securely installed in inventory. Replacing authentication measures based on use of security questions. Training of all of respondents' employees at least once every 12 months. But you're right. It says all. <laughs> in, in all cases. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I like the fact you noted just sort of briefly in passing on the fourth one you mentioned, which was encryption. They don't say what encryption they should use. I think that's particularly ironic considering the source of a lot of the danger from this attack. <laughs> and I know it's your backyard. Uh, the audience would probably benefit from hearing, you know, why this particular breach of Cafe Press was so damaging. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think we, when we do all of these breach of the weeks, like I think one of the things that I've heard over the years that's been helpful for folks is you try to like break down how they um, happened. And in some cases, like we have the very like explicit details on what happened. In some cases, you have to speculate a little bit and kind of fill in some, some logical gaps to come to a like a seemingly logical conclusion. But in this case, so Cafe Press, they used as part of their application, they basically used tokens in lieu of username and password. So we would typically think like a website, you log in, you put in your username and password, your password gets encrypted or hashed. And in really good situations, like your password as you know it would get hashed in a one-way computation stored, but your password, as you see it in clear text, never actually gets stored anywhere. Like what gets stored is the hash. And every time you log in with your password, that application is actually just matching hash values, right? But in this case, Cafe Prest used a token that was tied to like a, a user, if you will. So someone's username and password is embodied in this token. And so what's particularly delicious about this token <laughs> is that it was a uh, encrypted with base 64 SHA-1 encryption algorithm, which for anybody in the space, you know, like that's as basic as it gets. And um, to give you like 
a very real example, just how like we crack those in the course of normal operations is that if you see any application that has a base 64 encoding and a very simplistic version of encryption to it, it is fairly simple to write a script with the coding and decoding so that you can, in an automated fashion, basically just turn around and decode that base 64 encryption. And you basically just reverse it through a script. And basically for each token, script runs, you unencode that token, and then you get that credential, if you will. And so in this case, when you talk about 23 million records, the question then comes, okay, if you have all of the tokens, and this is the piece where like I'm speculating a little bit to try to come to a logical conclusion, but you have 23 million records. It's a lot of records. How does someone get access to all of the tokens? 23 million times, right? So the logical step is like they're enumerated. So it's token plus one, token plus two, token plus three, token plus four. And so the beautiful thing about that is that works really, really well in a script that you might program because you just increment the number every single time. You de-encode it using the known encryption algorithm. And then all of a sudden you have username and password one, username and password two, username and password three. And if you're doing that in a script 23 million times, that doesn't take a very long time to do. And so it's, you just let it run and it collects. And pretty soon, because of a weak encryption algorithm and it's in someone that knows how to write the script. And in our cases, like the simplicity of it is like we actually write those things on the fly. And granted, not to discount anybody in the trade, like it takes a long time to practice on like how to do that some of the stuff. So like there's a little bit of like an art and expertise to it for sure. So not, not to discredit anybody who, who can actually like pull it off. But yeah, it's reasonable to think that type of attack would not take that long to export the 23 million records that were owned <laughs> this part of the hack. Youch. And I think one of the reasons why this got a lot of press, right, and why the fine was instituted, as we talked at the top of the show, it's not that common, was because it took them 30 days after they figured out what was going on uh, to inform the customers that it happened. And when they did inform the customers, basically, when folks logged in, they were forced to change their login password, but they were told it was a result of a password policy update. And they weren't told when they were doing it that it was a result of a breach. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of obscuration of the detail that I think brought the hammer down a little bit more severely uh, than it would have. I was like, I, I just want to come back to the irony part because I don't think I just realized I didn't tie that all back together. It was like in the order document from the FTC, like number four was like, they just say encryption, encryption of all social security numbers. But <laughs> they don't specify any level or like rigor of the encryption. So if you're using like base 64 SHA-1, like that's encryption. Can we just use what we've been using all along? <laughs> it's like, right on. That would check it. Like, well, this seems like totally circular here. Yeah. And that list, you know, that list of eight items where that's number four. I mean, a lot of this stuff, I don't know a lot of organizations who are really well run could manage it. You know, I'd, I'd encourage our listeners to look at their own bag of tricks and tell me that they would be willing to sign off, by the way, on penalty of perjury, according to a later codicil inside the order, that they have a complete and accurate inventory of all assets on all networks. Just start with that, like the most simple codicil, right? I think that that is hard, particularly for an organization at scale and an organization with multiple locations or an organization which is highly virtualized, right? How do you sign off on that? And then having done that, how do you do things like make sure that everywhere PII is stored, or is accessible, excuse me, not just stored, but accessible, that you have all the right protections in place. 
where on an as-needed sort of just-in-time virtualized environment, at what point in time does that quote-unquote asset you know, have to go through the rigor to make sure that it's adequately well protected because if it doesn't have persistent access, does it matter? And on and on and on and on. To me, it's nice to see somebody getting a little bit of incentive to do it right the next time. But in general, I think the recommendations, it reminds me of President Biden's recommendations for cybersecurity that said, by the way, that 30 years of bad cybersecurity, I'd really like it fixed by Wednesday, by Wednesday. And this is like Tuesday night right? To me, it's just an unreasonable set of requests. And I think the security people are like, yay, this is what they should be doing, right? But business people are like, yikes, I'm glad that wasn't me because that's impossible. If you added like a dollar sign for everything that's included in that list of requirements, it's like national debt size. Yeah. If you were the security leader forced to assert and attest under penalty of perjury, how good would you feel about making that? Yeah. I mean, think about it, right? So I think logically, and you know, for the listeners, right, try to think about this logically. Logically, you look at it and you say, all right, these are things that should be done. Let's go try to make sure that it's done. I'm going to attest my personal reputation uh, and the risk of perjury that all this stuff is happening. I don't even know where I would go start looking for the answers so that I would feel I was doing something other than just a hand wave right? How do I decide it's a complete inventory? How do I decide that everything has reaffirmed its authentication? Justin, you mentioned it said you got to change out the way you're doing your password schema for MFA. How do you know that applications that they're using from third-party vendors even allow it, right? Even have that capability. And you're going to assert that it's going to happen. Yikes. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't sound great. You know, I, I think I've actually come like full circle on this here. Originally, when we first started talking was, uh, is good the FTC is doing something, as I process like what you said earlier about that works out to like three or four cents a record that was lost, it's almost insulting, right? When you say like, if that's the only fine you actually levy and that's going to be the extent of the punishment, it does almost become like the cost of doing the business, right? And security just becomes this laughable thing. Like, why would you actually take it seriously? Because not worrying about your users or the security hygiene of your platform and just willing to pay those fees, mm -hmm. it completely like minimizes the effort in trying to protect the privacy of people's information. Like I, I would almost prefer like people live in fear of like what could actually happen than actually monetize it. Right. The FTC is effectively validating a lost record is worth three or four cents. Yeah, I would <laughs> like to reassess my math. It's actually two point two cents. <laughs> <laughs> per record. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh my record. gosh. Yeah. Ugh. And here's the issue, right? Case law has shown, like we talked about at the top of the show, that it's hard to find proximate damages, right? So you're not going to be able to get sued for it under current case law. Basically, you need tort reform. You cannot sue people for the likelihood that having all of their private data stolen is a bad idea, right? Yeah. And my guess is if people's accounts were stolen, passwords were stolen, people took time, you know, and took advantage of it. The credit card companies probably bear the brunt of that, right? Through the fact that fraudulent transactions on the credit cards will get covered by the credit card vendor. Mm -hmm. So ultimately the end user isn't suffering any real harm. And so what you'd need to have happen, I mean, as we're talking this through, like I'm just working it out in my mind, right? So who pays the price for this, right? So let's assume that some number of these accounts were stolen and used and credit card payments were made to buy things that weren't really bought on Cafe Press, whatever. And so a certain amount of money was lost, but that would have been lost by the credit card companies whose insurers would have to cover the loss as part of the cost of doing business, 
right? The end users have no right to sue really because if it's only financial harm, they can't claim anything for it. If private data is stolen, then maybe there's a some privacy thing that happens later on. But you know, losing your password that you're using on that site is theoretically have limited benefit except to that site, unless you're reusing it everywhere else. And then there's the whole like Byzantine channel mess of how many places you use the same password to chase it down. I think any you know finding culpability in this environment is really really hard. Now, I think maybe part of what you have happening here is that the privacy statement exposed by the folks at Cafe Press indicated they had paid attention to security in a way that they really had, right? So there's a certain amount of breach of contract probably, which may be the underlying reason through which they're able to be fined for something. But I think that, you know, the FTC's ruling probably would have more merit if it addressed that very simple problem that you described. There was the root cause of this. You really didn't pay enough attention to the way that you were handling and taking care of this very specific thing in this very specific way. Fix that or you're going to get hit again, as opposed to telling them they have to move heaven and earth, which will make them ignore the whole order. Right. I like that better, actually. The last part of it, this is just one person's opinion. (laughs) It seems like it would be a bigger stick and more incentive to take action if you said, by the way, here's a reasonable list of things that need to be done that are meaningfully impactful to protecting your consumer's data. And if you don't do this, here is your escalating fee schedule. And like you need to send us evidence that you're doing these things, right? And perhaps that evidence could be like through an independent third party or whatever the case may be. But otherwise, like there's an ongoing penalty that needs to be paid if you don't maintain the hygiene to protect people's information. Because as of right now, it's like there's these really all or nothing type requirements that are going to be super hard to do. People are going to assert to it because that's really all you can do. Because otherwise, speaking in, in absolutes, all the time is a really hard thing to do. And you're right, it's going to end up making some hand-waving. But I don't see any penalties in the FTC's order for ongoing non-compliance. Right on, right on. Yeah, so I support that. Smaller list, verifiable measures, accelerating penalty fees if you don't do these basic things and just try to get it better a little bit at a time. That would be a much better way to get home. Yeah, it's crazy. Like there's no other place in this world where like you speak in like total absolutes and you have to do all these things like a presidential mandate. It's how businesses are run. It's a smaller palatable list that you can verify and you know that you can execute against, right? And that's how benchmarks are established and that's how you like make forward progress. You know, crazy. Eat Mount Fuji one spoonful at a time. (laughs) Right. One could argue that as a result of this bad behavior, Cafe Press is taking a bath. And it leads us to our next story. (laughs) (laughs) That was so well done. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Oh, my God. That was solid. Dude. So I found this. I found it like super fun to talk about because it combines a few of my favorite topics. One, unexpected attack vector. Two, sort of affects all regular human kinds of people and not just businesses. And three, one of the things I like best about it was it had the word stinky in the headline, right? You combine those three things together and it's a winner. And we're actually talking about the jacuzzi hack uh, that get reported about a week ago where a researcher, not a bad person, but a white hat, figured out that the backup network that runs uh, a lot of the administration for wireless access to hot tubs was itself vulnerable. And I thought that this was a pretty good piece to touch on um, and some of the mistakes they had made. And I think they're largely made because of the fact that people didn't expect anyone to ever be attacking their hot tubs. 
Oh man, yeah. You sell enough hot tubs, you're bound to have a security person in one of them, and that security person, of course, is going to download the app. You just hit the nail on the head, right? So the the researcher took a look at it because he had bought a hot tub. It was delivered. He saw it had an online interface, and he said. I think I'm going to go take a look and see if this thing is secure enough. And he found out that it was not as clean as he would have liked his water to be. <laughs> yeah. Just trying to take us down another level here. So the, the topic of the article was jacuzzi, but it seems like that's just a popular name. The IoT component to this is um, called Smart Tub. And Smart Tub is, I'm kind of p- paraphrasing a little bit, it's an IoT smart device. So there's IoT hardware that exists on board within a collection of brands um, so there's Jacuzzi, Sundance, D1, and Thermospas have the smart tub IoT capabilities that will get hooked into your smart device. So you can either get the app um, that's through Alexa, which is pretty funny, Google Assistant, Wear OS, or Apple Watch. And I assume I don't see anything on the iPhone here, but I would have to look to see if it's on the iPhone app store. It's not, even though it's not explicitly mentioned here. So wait, this person sets up SmartTub app and realizes his account has to be authorized by the dealer, gets confirmation through his email. So the email comes from SmartTub IO, right? which, which immediately tells you a whole bunch about the architecture of this, this IoT is not for a specific device. It, there is a whole platform behind this thing, right? Yep. And so logs in, goes to Auth0 branded login page, which is also super interesting, um, and realizes like he's not authorized. But in the course of not being authorized, one of the headers flashes, he's able to screenshot it. And then he basically looks at their single page application was built using React. And so knowing that, in that admin panels are also commonly built as a single page application. He was able to basically download the JavaScript bundle and searched for instances within the code to determine whether someone is or is not authorized. And then from there, he was basically reverse engineer to find the URL. So found where the error path directed him for the URL and then was able to basically manipulate that URL to get redirected to the page that he needed to get directed to. And the short of it is, in the course of doing that, um, was able to sidestep authentication to get full unrestricted access to every spot and every owner and be able to take actions as removing their ownership. And so we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but the screenshots and the order of operations is, um, is, is pretty interesting to see like how he like kind of stepped through reverse engineering it with the URLs and then, you know, just kind of exploited the the JavaScript bundles to get to different admin panels. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because this guy does mods on consoles for like game boxes and stuff. So he was really smart, but this was outside the building. But he just happened, I guess, to be sitting in it and said, oh, I got nothing else to do. And just starts <laughs> just starts looking around. Yeah, the, the thing that got me sort of most about it was, and let's face it, right? Um, it's It's a hot tub, right? This is not a power plant. Right. And yeah. I think I think the quote was something on the order of, you know, the, the worst I can think of doing right now is to change all the filtering and timing and temperature and create a hot, stinky soup in all these hot tubs. 
right? Yeah. So that's, you know, so maybe it's not earth shattering. But the thing that, that got to me a little bit about the story, and again, we'll put a point to, one, to a couple of these stories in the show notes, is there, there's a really nice detailed examination of what this hacker, who, by the way, is Eaton at Eaton Works, just to give credit where credit is due, um, who had gone through it. Uh, he gives a timeline of what it was like dealing with the jacuzzi official people about this problem that he had found. So this, again, we talk a lot you know, about breaches and vulnerabilities, and sometimes we talk about responsible disclosure, right? And so this person did all the work, figured it out on himself, sent a very detailed analysis, sent questions, actually interacted a couple of times with various people who then went silent like the grave. He reported it on December 3rd, and, and was basically ghosted multiple times. And then they eventually, he figured out they fixed it because he just kept testing it. And finally, it was fixed about six months after he identified, a little over six months after he identified it. And to date, nobody's ever responded to him. And who knows, right? But it feels to me uh, like he sent them a lot of fairly respectful messages asking if they wanted some help getting this fixed and giving them detail and following up and they'd ask him a question for more information, he would do it and he would send it off to their support team, what have you. And they just treated it like a non-problem, maybe hoping that, you know, like a stinky tub that gets adjusted, it would clear itself over time. But for me, that was one of the big takeaways, right? Even the folks, when they were given all the tools to make it better, didn't respond to the contributor who gave me the information and, and really didn't sort of jump to it to make the change. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting visual. Get your, your hot tub delivered, you finally get your account activated, get the hot tub turned on, go sit down in and realize, oh, it's a smart hot tub. Download the app and realize like, <laughs> it's just ripe with scribble. <laughs> I'd imagine I'd be like, hey, how's the new hot tub going? I'd be like, well, it's excellent, but I'm gonna be here for a while. Can you just bring me another bottle of wine while I <laughs> die? I'm gonna be in here for the evening. You're like, you're in the most comfortable situation. You got a nice, like, nice cold beer, nice glass of wine. You got an app that's intellectually stimulating and you're comfortable and warm during that whole exercise. Right on. It's like, it's like a really nice, really nice, comfortable setting. Turn on the bubbles. <laughs> you know, I look at it, you know, from sort of like the monetization perspective. And if I have all these known jacuzzi owners, I have telephone numbers, email addresses, and I've got their names, right? And the model that they bought. You can think about how if someone else had downloaded that information, how easy would it be to send out a text message? This is your authorized XYZ support rep or send it to their email or whatever. And just send out a note that says, for a limited time, we're offering five-year support packages for $50 a year, which is 80% off our ordinary. If you're at all interested, this offer expires in 30 days, right? N number of people are going to send you the money. It comes to the right place. It does the right thing. Put the address, you know, this is coming to you from jacuzzi.whatever. Spell it with one Z. Nobody will notice. And, you know, there you go. It's a whole monetization strategy that'll catch 80% of the people. Oh, yeah, for sure. So there's all sorts of reasons why... There should have been a lot of gratitude to somebody who took the time to drink some nice wine in their hot tub to figure this out and to document it with the thoroughness that this person did. Yeah, that is a fact. You saved us from pretty significant brand damage. Right on. Right on. Those are good, Those are good ones, man. Well, you know, I like it when we have the hot tub bat and cleanup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I clean up, clean up stinky soup. Right on, man. All right. So there's two breaches. On that note, yeah, that was our uh, that was our go go breach of the week. Give one, get one. <laughs> Loving it. Sweet. All right. What well, you say? You want to wrap this one up? Absolutely. Put a towel around it. Yeah. <laughs>
We should we should just keep going just so I can keep hearing these. All right. Well, if you need a uh, honest cybersecurity help, you want to uh, chat through application exploits, whether it's you know JavaScript bundles or base something that's base sixty four encoded. Those are always great. You can reach us at pwned at newharborsecurity.com and we'll catch you on the next one.